Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There are times when it's not difficult to affirm the declaration that life is hard. We heard from uh, Norm this morning about one experience of his life that really pressed in upon him. We, we, it doesn't take long for us to look around and to see the difficulties and the pain and the struggles of living in this world. And now, as we're in the middle of this pandemic, it, it feels like it's growing and intensifying. Life can be hard. And in those moments when life is hard, when life presses in upon us, one of the questions that comes to people's minds, and particularly those of us who follow Jesus, but I think it's a common question among a lot of people, is not just where is God, but who is God? Who is God in the midst of this struggle? Who is God in the midst of this pain? Who is God in the midst of this intense moment? Who is God? There is a sense in which all of Scripture is, is helping us understand who God is in all the moments of life, the hard times and the easy times, the bad times and the good times. We sometimes read Scripture and have this mindset that that it's really about telling us who we are. And it does speak to us about who we are. But the ultimate purpose of Scripture is to declare for us who God is. And I think there is something of that, not, in, not only in all of Scripture, but there are particular places where you see that more clearly. And I think Psalm 29 is one of those places. It's an interesting psalm in that there are a number of scholars who believe that this psalm uh, is something that David, that David took from Canaanite poetry and, and made it his own. That, he, that there, were, there was a popular, popular Canaanite poetry, there's a style, there's a structure to it. And David took that and wrote his psalm out of that structure and that style. Now, for some people, that's disturbing to them because it feels like, wow, you're using Canaanite things, you're using pagan things. But, you know, through the history of God's people, they've always done that. You know, one of the, the stories of church hymnody is that Martin Luther and Charles Wesley and probably others would, took popular, familiar bar tunes and wrote Christian words to them. I remember when I was in college, uh, there was, a, there was a popular beer commercial, and somebody, I don't know if it was at our school or somewhere else, took that and, and created Christian words out of it. And we would sing, when you say Christ, you said a lot of things nobody else could say, <laughs> you know, and uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it, it took, put in Jesus and Christ all the way to that song. Well, you know, not everybody thought that was the greatest idea in the world, but as college students, you're always pushing the boundaries, and so we're thinking, this is a great idea. Now, I have to say, in retrospect, I'm not disappointed that that didn't end up in the canon of church hymnody, uh, not the least of which is because it's just not good, wasn't really good uh, writing, but, you know, there was something catchy about that, and all these years later, I still remember it. 
which was the point that Luther and Wesley and others made, is that these are tunes that are familiar. People can learn this, the new words easily enough. We'll just take what they know and we'll transfer it into Christian thought. Now, there are people now who are not all that excited about the fact that they think it's a problem and it's wrong that Easter, the date for Easter, is connected to the spring equinox. Because the spring equinox has a history of, of a, a pagan fertility rite. Well, when we come for on you know, Easter Sunday morning, we're not coming to enact a pagan ritual about hoping that God will give us a lot of food this year. We're coming to celebrate Christ who has risen from the dead and who has conquered hell and death and evil and sin and that we have life in him. And throughout the history of God's people, we have taken things that are familiar to folks and we have, we have helped them to understand, to turn it just a little bit so that what is familiar now becomes familiar to them about God. And I don't know if that's exactly what David does in the psalm, but if he does, then it, it would be a way for both the people of Israel and the people around them to learn and to connect. Because this is a psalm, as many of the psalms are, and much of the Old Testament is, it is a psalm that is written in direct contrast to the gods of the nations that not only other people worship, but the Israelites were continually tempted to worship. And so you come to the first two verses, and David says, David writes that, Honor the Lord, you heavenly beings. Honor the Lord for his glory and strength. Honor the Lord for the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. When he talks about this, these, uh, talking about the, the people who are uh, the, these holy beings, there's a lot of discussion about what exactly that means, these heavenly beings. There are some places, some people who believe that it's, it's about the angels. And some of the translations that you will read actually use the term angels. And it might well be that. There are other places where this term is used and it's describing the gods of other nations. It's talking about the gods that people worship. What I find fascinating is that whatever, whichever explanation you may have, the, the whole point is that Yahweh is greater than those gods. He's saying those beings, the angels, the other gods that you worship, all of those supernatural beings, they come and they worship Yahweh. They realize that Yahweh alone is God. They realize that Yahweh alone is the king. And they come and they worship him. That's why in Exodus, who among you is like all the other gods? Psalm 89 has something similar. Who is like you among the pantheon of gods? None of them. None of them. Because Yahweh is the only true God. He has no rival. He has no equal. He alone is God. And that truth is at the heart, at the foundation of all that it means to be a follower of Yahweh. There is a sense in which he is not really a God among other gods. He is the only God. And David says that this God, that all these beings come, they worship him because he alone is holy and pure. When you read the stories of the ancient gods of, of the ancient Near East, none of their gods 
would be considered holy. That's not even a term that, that, that is associated with the gods. When you read the stories, you find that they, are, they act just like human beings. They act selfishly. They manipulate. They trick. They, they use. They lie. They cheat. They steal. They do everything that the human beings do. Yahweh alone is holy. He alone is God. And David spends then the next seven or eight verses describing this God who all the beings come to worship. And so beginning at verse 3, he says, The voice of the Lord echoes above the sea. The God of, of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty sea. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord splits the mighty cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes, a Lebanon, makes Lebanon's mountains skip like a calf. He makes Mount Hermon leap like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with bolts of lightning. The voice of the Lord makes the barren wilderness quake. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists almighty oaks and strips the forest bare. In his temple, everyone shouts glory. The Lord rules over the floodwaters. The Lord reigns as king forever. What a powerful description. And, and David is saying, our God is almighty. There are things about creation that frighten us. Anne in her children's story was talking about the, the fear that can come to us in a violent storm. David says, God's greater than the storms. He talks about how, how God's voice, all God has to do is speak. The storms come, the storms go. All God has to do is speak, and the oceans roar, and the oceans are calm. We've been to the, the beach a few times, the Carolina beach, and, and you can when a storm is coming and you're standing there, I mean, all the time, the waves are pouring in, and, and it's loud, but when a storm is coming and the, and the ocean is in turmoil, you can hardly have a conversation with anyone if you're standing on the beach near the waves because they are crashing in and, and there's so much noise and there is such power in the waves of the sea. And David says, God is greater. It's as if he takes, he thinks about all of the things of our lives that frighten us, all the things in the world that are destructive and he says, God is greater. Every one of them. This is who Yahweh is. I love the fact, the imagery he uses about not just, not just the things that happen in nature, but what you might call the, the immovable elements of nature. He talks about these, the trees, the cedars of Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon are the most famous trees in the ancient Near East. They are, they are the prized lumber that everybody wants. They're majestic trees. You remember back when David is building the palace and later Solomon the temple. When you read, one of the, one of the key elements of that is that they go to Lebanon and they buy cedar wood from the king of Lebanon because there's no better wood in the world. And David says, however great that wood is, God is greater. He talks about the mighty oaks being twisted and the forest being stripped bare. And I don't know if this is exactly what he means, but what comes to my mind are the sequoias and the redwoods. 
these great majestic trees that, you know, some of them, you can, they could drive two cars through them. David says, these trees are like kindling in the hands of God. All God has to do is speak, and they fall apart. He talks about the mountains. He talks about how uh, Lebanon's mountains skip like a calf. Put that image into your mind for just a second. You know, a mountain skipping like a calf. And Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon leaps like a wild, young wild ox. That's an interesting imagery, isn't it? Because mountains are some of the most immovable objects of the world. You know, mountains are majestic. Mountains are powerful. They're awe-inspiring. I, I've mentioned this to you before, but I think one of the most, one of the most awe-inspiring moments of my life was when we moved to Oregon and we were driving down the interstate on the Columbia River Gorge and you come around a turn and there's Mount Hood looming in front of you. I can still, even now as I'm talking about it, I can feel the hair on the back of my neck standing up. I mean, I, my, I remember looking at that. Every time I made that drive and, and we came around that bend and there was this mountain and it felt so close and so big and you felt like you felt this small in front of it. And, and you, I could actually feel... My, my heart began to, to beat faster and my pulse to race. And you know that feeling when you're just overtaken by awe at something that is so big and majestic. And imagine that, that mountain leaping like a calf. And David says, you think these things are so powerful? They are nothing in the hands of Yahweh. Nothing. The only mention of people responding in this psalm is that in the temple, all of them cry out glory. The word glory actually begins, it originally is a negative word. It means to be heavy. It's, it's used sometimes to describe the heaviness of sin. And you, we all know that feeling of, of feeling guilty, and, and you almost can and actually literally physically feel weight on your chest when you wrestle with that. But it soon became, began to, to be, it came, uh, switched around and became a positive word, and it described things that were weighty and heavy in the positive sense, so that it became a, a word to describe people who were respected. I mean, we still use it that way now, right? We say, that person carries a lot of weight. And what we mean is they have influence. People listen to them. People pay attention to them. People respect them. And the people in the temple are crying, God, we respect you. We glorify you because you are the kind of God who is immovable, almighty. All you have to do is speak and the world crumbles before you. God reigns over all, David says at the end of verse 10. And you read that psalm and you think, okay, wow, this is a great, great psalm about the sovereignty of God, the power of God, and you just stop there. But David doesn't stop there. He adds one more verse, and quite frankly, it feels like an addendum. It feels out of place. It doesn't seem to kind of make sense to the rest of the psalm that's been talking about the greatness, the power, the, 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 the almighty nature of God. 
and his ability to take anything and in his hands to, to crush it. This is the kind of God that we worship. And then David writes in verse 11, the Lord gives strength to his people's strength. The Lord blesses them with peace. It feels out of place. I think it's a literary device that David is using. Because sometimes you can emphasize something by talking only about it all the time, or you can talk about something else, and then at the very end, you, you add in what, this, this last phrase that is so jarring and so different that you can't forget it. This isn't exactly this, but it reminds me of this. I once heard about a, a seminary student who uh, was preaching his seminary sermon. You know, every, in seminary, every, you have to take preaching classes, and you have to stand in front of your class, and you have to preach your sermon. And everyone has to do a senior sermon for a larger group of people in most seminaries. And so this student was giving his, his sermon, and it's supposed to be 20 minutes. And he spent, um, he spent 19 minutes and 45 seconds talking about how much his brother loved trains. He kept talking about how his brother loves trains. His brother loves everything about trains. He knows all about them. He loves to go out and watch them. He loves to ride them. He has trains in his basement set up. He reads books about trains. He writes about trains. He watches videos about trains. Everything of his life is about trains. He loves trains. He'll go anywhere to see a train. He'll pay any kind of money to, be, to, to experience something related to a train for 19 minutes and 45 seconds, all he talked about was how much his brother loved trains. You can imagine everybody listening is going, what in the world is this? Right? And the last 15 seconds, he says, my brother loves trains. I love the church. And he sat down. Now, I'm not sure that was a great sermon, but you don't forget that. Right? One sentence was the point of his sermon. All the rest of it was something else. And I think there's a little bit of that in what David is doing here. He's been talking about the power of God, the awesome majesty of God, the almighty nature of God. And he gets to the end, he says, oh, by the way, that God I've been describing, at his heart, he's a giver. And I think that is the, really the ultimate essence of David's point. That God who is almighty at the center of his nature is that he's a giver. He loves to give. And it's not because people deserve it. He doesn't give because people have merited that blessing. He doesn't bless his people because they have measured up to a standard. It's not about them. It's about him. It's not about who they are. It's who he is. He gives. James writes in uh, chapter 1, verse 17, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God, our Father. One translation says every good and perfect gift comes from God. Everything that's good, the source of it is God because that's his nature. And that sets him apart from all the other gods. He's not set apart from all the other gods just because he is all-powerful, though he is. Really what sets him apart at the essence of his nature is that God is love. God is good. And God loves to give good gifts to his children. All the other nations around Israel talk a lot about connecting to their God. 
It's one of the most common things people will say about connecting to their God. What sets Yahweh apart is that it's his passion and his desire and his yearning to connect with his people. He initiates. He yearns for his people. He seeks his people. He loves his people. And David says, God of great power uses all of that power as a means of loving his people. And that's what sets him apart. Is he almighty? Of course he is. Is he sovereign? Yes, he is. But at the heart of his being is love. As I've said to you before, you know, I remember hearing a theologian say that at the very heart of the nature of God, what, what is, is not sovereignty, as important as that is, it's love. Because God didn't need to be sovereign until he created something over which he could be sovereign. But the Trinity, the eternal Father, the eternal Son, the eternal Spirit, exists not in sovereignty and power toward each other, but in love. That's the nature of the Trinity. That's the nature of God. And God is, identifies himself as love because ultimately what God is looking for from his people is not fear and obligation as a response to him. He's looking for desire and love as a response to him. What he wants is relationship with us. That's why he created us. God didn't create the world and God didn't create people so that he would have things over which to exert his power. He created things and people so that he could have relationship. And David, who not for a second diminishes the power and the sovereignty of God, says ultimately, what really sets Yahweh apart from all the other gods is that he is a God who gives and loves. And isn't that Jesus? I mean, Jesus tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What does he do with the authority and the power? He gives his life in love. Because he realizes that, that we aren't saved through power. We are saved and transformed and the world is redeemed and restored through love. And it doesn't diminish the power of God or the sovereignty of God or the almighty nature of God. Not for a moment. He alone is God and he has no rivals or equals. But he has no rivals and equals in his love as well. And that's where we come to this table today. Because at this table, we come face to face with the power of God to conquer death. But in the midst of that, we come face to face with the heart of God who is love and grace and compassion and blessing. We come face to face with the cross. And the God who, who says that he so loved the world 
that he gave his only son. And my prayer is that that as we acknowledge the, the greatness of God, as we acknowledge the power of God and the almighty nature of God and the sovereignty of God, that we will understand that this awesome God loves us and desires us and is at work in our lives and in this world when we see it and when we don't. And we can trust Him. Holy Father, we thank you that you have no rival, you have no equal. We thank you that your power reaches all that you have made. We also thank you for your awesome love and your amazing grace. Father, as we come to this table, pour out the abundance of your blessing on the bread and the cup. That as we eat and drink here and wherever we are, that we will know the power of your grace in our hearts, in our lives, transforming us, making us new. Making us your people love and grace. We ask this through Christ. Amen.